Welcome back to the Superhumanized podcast. As always, it is such a privilege to share time with you, dear superhumans. And I hope that what I share on this platform may enhance your lives and well-being in many ways. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Those of you who have listened to this podcast for a while know that I believe biohacking and optimization is not only a personal quest, but a quest to help solve problems so the entire human family can thrive. And I am profoundly honored to share the stories of my guests who are on this mission. 1.1 billion people began this millennium hungry. This is a fact that can either make you despair or take action. And this is the fact that started today's guest, Sam Berkram, and his brother on their journey. Together, Sam and John set out to unleash the power of plants on human health and find a solution to one of the biggest challenges the human family faces. Their mission is to fundamentally rethink how plants are grown, utilized, and optimized by technology and science to maximize the natural capabilities of plants to sustain and optimize human health. Samuel Bertram is co-founder at 1.1, which is revolutionizing vertical farming by building the most technologically advanced cultivation platform on the planet through innovations in robotics, AI, and plant science. Sam is an entrepreneur with a background in robotics and a passion for health and human wellness. After coming to the United States to play tennis, both Sam and his brother John co-founded 1.1 with the desire to nourish the 1.1 billion people that began this millennium malnourished. With their team at 1.1, they have created the most advanced vertical farming technology in the world. And it is with this technology that 1.1 will nourish and heal humanity through plant-based foods and medicines grown via a global network of automated vertical farms. These warehouse-based vertical farms that grow plants indoors away from nature's unpredictability and human-made disasters could help ease world hunger and solve some of the most pressing supply chain issues in the process. It is with confidence that Sam says, plants can solve today's problems and tomorrow's greatest challenges. And he will share with us how in the following conversation. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Sam, it is such a pleasure to connect with you. Welcome to the Superhumanize podcast. Thank you very much. Superhumanize is about the optimal human experience as an individual and also as a collective human family. And you and your brother John's mission is focused on both. And on the bigger picture scale, you have set out to support humanity and find a solution for actually one of our most pressing problems. Yes. What is 1.1 and what does it stand for? 
Sure. My brother and I, after we came to the United States to play tennis when we were 18, we went through college and all that fun stuff. And at the end of college, we really wanted to be useful human beings to others. We have, we've lived very blessed lives in a variety of ways, and we are willing to sacrifice small things in the grand scheme in order to help others. Understanding that you only have one shot at life, we thought, why not go for the biggest problem on planet Earth? And the biggest problem on planet Earth is poor nutrition. 821 million people don't get enough food and 2.2 billion people eat too much of the wrong thing. And so almost half of the global population is not nourished properly. And so when you start to dive into that and why that is the case, you start to figure out that not only are we significantly malnourished as a species, the thing that supports us, agriculture, is also in a lot of trouble. And I'm not a doomsdayer, but look, the statistics are absolutely immense. 75% of US topsoil is gone. Agriculture is 70% of all freshwater consumption. You can see aquifers, underground water reserves are being depleted way faster than we can replenish them. So once we understood all of that, we figured that if we can find a way to produce higher quality plants with less of a demand on natural resources and get those products into the hands of more consumers, eventually at a better price, that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. 100%. And there's something that really has touched me about you and your brother's story. So becoming profoundly aware of hundreds of millions and billions of humans of beings suffering is a heavy and overwhelming thing. So what I'd like to know is how was the process for you to move from realization to action? And also, did you have a time of total overwhelm or perhaps being frozen in the face of the suffering? And if so, what did you do? Oftentimes, John and I always try and put things in perspective. And what we like to say is, you know, I am not a soldier at 16 years old in the trenches in 1916, okay? So whatever I am enduring right now is not quite the same. And and therefore, in the same way that those individuals and many other individuals throughout history, male, female, any color, have stood up in the face of adversity, we're going to do the same thing. The realization... And it was because a lot of people get turned off emotionally by statistics. They're not relatable. To John and I, we made them relatable. Understanding, oh my goodness. So if you think about one mother in sub-Saharan Africa with six kids who cannot find a way to to feed her kids that day or the next day, multiply that by 800 million. And it's just immense. And so rather there's a sort of flight or flight fight or flight is either you can get frozen in it, which does nothing, doesn't help that woman or those 800 million people, or you step up and say, this is going to take me 10, 15, 20 years. I'm going to have to sacrifice personal life and a couple of other things that are meaningful to me, but not meaningful to those other 800 million. And I, the mission that John and I set about uh, doing from 1.1 is separate to what we have as individuals. I do not want to leave this earth unless I have made a tangible difference to 100 million people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so I'm happy to get started with that at 23. I'm 29 now. And 1.1 will be as successful as it will be. We will affect as many lives as we can. Uh, and we will grow this business to the point where it is a, a very well-oiled machine producing value for as many people as we possibly can. And then we'll find the next endeavor to hopefully be a part of the solution of the, the next big problem. Certainly, it's chilling. And it is disturbing, 
but that sort of that's fire on the flame. Uh, so that, that's gasoline on the flame for us. Excellent. I love how this fuels your fire and actually just propels your passion. Yeah. As you said, it's so easy to become frozen. I think it's also oftentimes a, I think it's a self-protective psychological reaction to shut ourselves off when we are overwhelmed just by the amount of suffering or problems that, that we perceive. So to yeah. move beyond that, or maybe even be hardwired to not be stalled by that, I think that's an absolutely amazing thing. And I think Today, especially today, we are acutely made aware of the importance of food supply throughout the world and how everything is connected. We've seen some of the issues during the last two years of the pandemic. Yeah. Present, we're witnessing the war in Ukraine and how, amongst other, that has affected the grain supply globally. Yeah. As Ukraine is one of the biggest grain suppliers worldwide. And here in the US and in Europe, we're experiencing massive inflation with regards to food prices, food shortages. And while it's hitting us pretty hard, it's nothing compared to the issues and suffering caused in, let's say, African countries, which yes. now largely rely on importing grain because we've pressed them into this kind of a supply chain. And yes. you, you and your brother, you have developed what's been called the most sophisticated indoor farming technology in the world. Yes. Can you tell us about what your baby, actually your big, beautiful baby is. <laughs> I've got a four-year-old daughter at home, so she's the primary big, beautiful baby. But look, when we looked at agriculture, agriculture, let me step back for a second. Okay. Plants are the basis of human nutrition. We've known this for a very long time. It's nuanced, but it's also unequivocal. How, what does agriculture rest on? What, how are plants grown, excuse me, agriculturally? How do we grow these plants in soil? Can we grow these plants in the future? No, not to the extent that we need to. So we figured out, okay, so we've got to find a new way to grow plants. Let's figure out a way to grow plants that doesn't require a massive amount of land and fertile soil, doesn't require a massive amount of water, doesn't require a massive amount of labor. And so we came across this concept of vertical farming, which is the process of growing plants inside of warehouses, as is distinct from greenhouses, which still use sunlight, Vertical farms don't use any sunlight. It's a completely controlled environment. When you look at a controlled environment, what does that actually mean for the plant? You don't have to worry about seasons anymore. You have to worry about pests far less. You use far less water. The quality of the plant is naturally higher because you're giving the plant exactly what it needs. So all of these 99% less water, 99% less land, all of these incredible value propositions. But when you looked at the market in 2017, where are they? You can point to the Netherlands and you can look at 90 million square meters of greenhouses, 90 million square meters of greenhouses. You could barely look at 200,000 square feet of vertical farms at that point. Hmm. So essentially what we said, why is that the case? The problem is unit economics. The problem is not the quality of the product. The problem is not the technical sophistication or the subsystems working together. The problem is that when you compare this form of production to traditional production, which is 10,000 years old, mm. this is just more expensive. And mm. so much more expensive that the consumer isn't going to take notice. Why is it more expensive? Because when you're packing 150 times more plants per square foot into a vertical farm, guess what you're doing to labor? Guess what you're doing to inputs, nutrients, seeds? So we had to figure out a way to eliminate a lot of those on-site 
functions or turn them into an automated function and make the plant more productive with the same resources. So to summarize the system from a cross section, you have replacing the sun, you have LED lights that are providing very specific wavelengths, very specific intensities, very specific light lengths. We can control the length of the day. At the leaf zone as well, you're also controlling CO2, oxygen concentration, temperature, humidity at the leaf zone. You want to make all of that perfect. If any of those are off, it precipitates down into all other different factors in the plant. So they must be very accurate. Then on the root zone, similarly, you have to control temperature. You have to control humidity. You have to control the pH of the nutrient solution. You have to control how often you're irrigating the plant. So there are essentially about 16 factors inside of the vertical farm that we control. I mentioned a couple of them, probably half of them. And then on top of that cultivation system, we have robots that run around the facility, moving the plants, visually inspecting the plants, moving the lights and so forth. So essentially what we've developed is a farm in a box. And this farm in a box is designed to produce the highest quality plants on earth with a much, much lower environmental footprint. And I read that the farm, so you have these autonomous robots, it's all also supervised or monitored by AI, and the humans that are actually monitoring can monitor them or actually are monitoring one of your warehouses from 750 miles away, right? Yes, yes. When we build a network of hundreds or thousands of farms, plants are a very complicated organism, and they very significantly cultivate a cultivar. So we, need to, we needed to figure out a way, how can we make sure thousands of farms at exactly the same time have the highest quality plant science expertise in every single one of them? So the best way to do that is to accumulate the data that is important to the plant scientists to make decisions and then get that plant scientist in a comfy chair with three screens, getting information flagged to them, they're annotating data, they're making decisions for farms that are a thousand miles away, this is eventually where we want to get because not only are we assisting in the real-time cultivation for all of those thousands of farms, we're building a database of information that no one else has that we can learn from. So all of those farms can become more productive and produce higher quality plants with exactly the same hardware. Amazing. And Sam, so I mentioned before you're looking at things, let's say like right now, the Ukraine war impacting global food supply. Of course, we're experiencing um, in California right now, and it's getting hotter every year, drought, we experience flooding in other parts. This is just in the United States. So from man-made disasters to natural disasters, it seems pretty self-evident to me how technology such as you and your brother have developed will actually alleviate the kinds of problems we're experiencing now because it takes the food supply out of these this uncertainty of these environments. I'd like to know, so how difficult is it to build what you've done here in, I'm just going to come up with something fictitious that to me sounds like, oh my God, it would be really difficult to do there in the middle of the Sahara. Okay. The union of self-sustaining energy production and automated vertical farms I think is probably one of the most important unions in the future of humanity. If we can figure out a way to produce energy in that one location sustainably and produce food in that one location sustainably, you've got something very special. So essentially what we need access to water, not much at all. We need access to power quite a bit. We need access to nutrients, seeds, and the internet. If we have access to those five main inputs, then we can have a technology that would 
produce high quality plants year round with a very low impact on the environment. Now, I probably wouldn't choose the Sahara Desert. There are lots of considerations that go into where we would put one of these facilities. But again, we our business model is to sell these farms. So as opposed to us going and raising a billion dollars and building 50 of these around the world and then selling the produce and managing the supply chain, there are hundreds of businesses worldwide that already know how to market, sell and distribute produce, market, sell and distribute medicines. We don't want to invent that, reinvent that wheel. We want to be the intel inside of agriculture, the platform upon which their plants are grown. Mm-hmm. I digress. Mm-hmm. Excellent. It sounds to me also something that would be very interesting as further down the timeline human space exploration develops, right? Yes. One of the, our current VP of engineering came from SpaceX. We have, there are a lot of things we can do, but very few things we do or aim at. Uh, but we keep all of these things in mind. When we're developing a system for leafy greens and for berries, we're keeping in mind this same system is going to be used for biopharmaceutical vaccine and medicine production or cannabinoid production or flora, flower production. So we keep those things in mind. But our system, as to much of the rest of the industry, we use much less water. We're more productive on a per plant basis. And we have a system that is a lot more automated. So when you deploy these things, first of all, you have to think about how much does this system weigh? Because every kilogram used to cost $10,000 to send a kilogram to space. Every kilogram matters. Once you get there, you have very finite resources, finite water, finite energy, finite humans. So having a system that's resource efficient, also including labor, is very important to be able to have colonies on Mars. So Mars or the moon or wherever you want to, wherever Elon decides to go. So yeah, it's, it's, I think this is going to be a key part of space exploration. And I'm hopeful that our system will be the one that Mr. Musk chooses. We'll see. I'm keeping all my fingers crossed for you, Sam. <laughs> I want to talk about some, I want to get do a little deeper dive on some of the specifics, onyx and AI farming. Can you yes. enlighten us about what is aeroponics? So there are three main buckets of cultivation techniques. The first one is soil. The absolute majority of plants grown around the world are grown in soil. Then the next step is greenhouse. And greenhouses typically use hydroponics. So there's soil-based and then there's hydroponics. So hydroponics is where the roots sit inside of a pool of water. Like when you put a rose inside of a vase, that is hydroponic. The plant is drinking from a pool of water. The third method of cultivation is aeroponic. And the difference here is rather than it being a volume of water, it's a mist. And the really important part of aeroponics is we want to get as much oxygen to the roots as possible without them drying out. That's the balance. So there's a saturation point in hydroponics in the pool of water. There's a saturation point where you simply can't inject any more oxygen into that water. And in fact, if you don't inject oxygen into that water, your plants will die. You have to inject oxygen. So in aeroponics, there's a much, much greater availability of oxygen, which allows these plants to grow faster. The leaves need CO2, the roots need oxygen. So that's the real advantage of aeroponics over hydroponics. In terms of AI production, being a young company, five years old, we have to be very focused on what we need to do now and what we need to do later. What we're developing now is a very simple set of checks. We can call it AI, we can call it machine learning, but essentially what it is, there's a computer system 
that is checking all of the different telemetry set points, light, temperature, humidity, all of these things, and imagery, and making sure nothing's wrong. So for example, when you look at an image or this AI looks at an image of plants, if you see any red or you see any black, that's a flag. You don't really want to see red or black in a plant. If you see discontinuities in the edge of the leaf, something's probably eating that leaf. If the size of the leaf on the canopy is smaller than it needs to be at that point in time, then something's wrong with the production system or something's wrong with the plant's genetics. So with all of these variables, with the system, with all of the variables and the different ways that plants can get sick, it's this interpretation machine that allows us to determine what's going wrong, what's going right, and then optimize. Mm, this is super fascinating, Sam. And I also think this would cut out a lot of the larger scale damage that you would see in conventional soil farming. And you can nip yes. the problem literally in the bud before yes. it spreads or becomes just a bigger problem, right? Yes, yes. I, I always say it is a traditional agriculture is a miracle. It's mm -hmm. just a miracle. The fact that so many people eat pretty much every day, I can't even get my head around how complex it is and it all manages to work. That's my starting point. The vast majority of farmers, the vast majority of agricultural businesses are just trying to do the right thing. They're trying to cultivate their land and get high quality products to the consumer. That's the reward cycle for these people from an emotional level. So they're not, I think we do a lot of, not that you are at all, not that I am, but I think there's a lot of people going to this demonization route that the farmers are doing this and the ag industry is doing this. Come on, most people are good people. But you're right, 70% of fresh water consumption, pesticides, aquifers, all of these kinds of things result in environmental damage. And I, even in my opinion, this is just my opinion, even more than focusing on sort of climate change and CO2 emissions and these kinds of things, I'm focused on environmental damage. This is the stuff that I can go and see right now that is a problem that can be rectified. So agriculture does have some issues with uh, environmental damage and environmental degradation for sure, but it's incumbent upon us now as a humanity to figure out new ways to meet our needs without harming the environment. 100%, absolutely. And for you, it's even more of a passion now having a beautiful little daughter. I yes. And so yes. even if we don't have children of our own to, I heard that it's important to actually try to envision the future and the impact that we have on it and how we can make it positive seven, yes. seven generations down. So if we yes. can start planning and working like that, especially within the realms of agriculture and just other things that really affect humanity on such a large scale, positively or negatively, that would be absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. There's something else I'd like for you to talk to us about. I have heard you say that, and it's true. So you've I've heard it from other sources as well, but that organic does not mean pesticide free. Again, I am glad that humanity is stepping towards more regenerative ways to produce plants. So it's not as if I'm trying to make some competitive claim here, but I do want the consumer to be informed. Organic does not naturally mean pesticide free. And that to me is frustrating because that's what a lot of consumers think it means. It's not true. It is a better product by and large and more pesticide free or with fewer pesticides, excuse me, than traditionally farmed products. And that's a great platform upon which those organizations can market, but it does not mean pesticide free. And there are some pretty nasty pesticides in those products as well. Now, tell us more about that. 
Yeah, it's a very nuanced topic. It's very easy to say pesticides are bad, it's killing you. Ah, let's just, let's be nuanced here for a second. Pesticides are the reason that tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people eat. Pesticides were a phenomenal invention by humanity. Phenomenal. In terms of net effect, phenomenal. So far as I have currently seen it, let's figure out ways to produce plants without pesticides. That's what we should aim at. Great job, humanity. We've done well. Let's move to the next step. Okay. So in order to be able to eliminate the use of pesticides, either you eliminate pests or the plant protects itself. And both of those are extremely limited methods or our ability to implement those changes are extremely limited. So that's one of the major benefits, I think, of vertical farming is we do not need pesticides inside of these facilities because we do such a great job of eliminating pests in the first place. What I can say pretty conclusively is, look, there's mixed evidence regarding what pesticides do to consumers. There are new studies out about how glyphosate are in some significant portion of the products that we're eating. Now, is there some clear correlation or causation between pesticides and consumer illness? I haven't seen too much about that. Is there a connection between pesticides and pharma illness? So if nothing else, I'd like to find a new way to produce plants that doesn't harm the farmers and eliminates the risk of the consumer becoming unwell from these products as well. Yes, I know I'm aware that opinions are very divided about this whole topic. Personally, I try to play it as safe as possible and try to limit the ways I expose myself to any of these compounds, whether it's the food I consume or how we treat the home and garden. Yes. And and I'm very curious to see what's going to come out in the next years. Hopefully, we'll have more substantiated studies and results and can clearly make links, which will then, if so, if there is a huge problem there, which will help us nip. Yes. Okay, if I may expand on that just for a moment. Sure. Would I advise people to eat plants with some pesticide residue or eat McDonald's? It's pretty clear. Mm. Uh, when we look at the United States, the Milken Institute did a study how much does diet-related disease cost the United States? Turns out it was $1.7 trillion, more than the military budget. Okie dokes. Is that because there are pesticides on our plants? Uh, that's marginal at best. It's because the food we're consuming, by and large, is absolute trash. It's yep. just trash. It's barely defined as food. It's so addictive. We're giving it to our kids younger and younger so that they just get in the habit, let alone the chemical addiction, but we get in the habit of consuming these things. It becomes part of our sort of personality or part of our culture. The main thing we need to focus on, I believe, is not so much pesticide residues on plants. It's, hello, everyone. Let's stop consuming so much meat. Therefore, let's stop producing this meat in, in this kind of way. Uh, the, the big problem here is that the food we're eating by and large is just so poor. I would point everyone towards plants, even if there is pesticide with residue on them. I think that's probably something probably you probably yes. want. Not a question about it. The same uh, holds true for myself. And I know we, I think we share, and I want to get into that a little further down the conversation. I think we share dietary habits. I think you are also plant-based, right? Yes, yes, yes. Excellent. And uh, there's a... You on your website, it states that your mission is to fundamentally rethink how plants are grown, utilized, and optimized. And you're also saying that doing nothing will cost us everything. 
Yes. And your passion, your vision, and your technology has actually inspired many people also to take action. You've raised $60 million. Can you talk a little bit about that journey and also when you started to realize that this is becoming something rather big? Sure. I'm, I measure my success in the number of lives that I've impacted, and I'm still woefully short of what I'm trying to achieve. There are moments of uh, pride. But most of my pride is aimed at the team. I, it's incredible. As flawed as we are as human beings, it's incredible that we can come together and produce something of such magnitude and magnificence. It's, I, I stand in awe every time I go to the farm. Look, the passion hasn't gone anywhere over the last five years, as you can probably tell. Coming into this there's a story I always tell about how little I knew about business and how little I knew about startups when I started this business. I didn't even know what incorporation was. We would come a very long way, but all the way along, it has been what we're trying to do is hard. What we're trying to do uh, may or may not succeed for a variety of different reasons, but what we're trying to do is right. That message, I think, as well, of course, these people aren't all just idealists. They're still going through data rooms and financials and things like that. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I think a lot of this has come down to the passion that our that all of our people in our business feel about this problem. When did it start becoming real? It's just, it's real as a spectrum. That first $10,000 check from the Stanford, Stanford investors was incredible. That was the best $10,000 of my life. And then we start to close on a million and then 10 million and then 20 million. And it becomes part of the process. But the points of pride for me, other than what I mentioned a moment ago, was the expression that people give when they taste the product. Mm. And this matters. It's not just about taste, but this matters because it implies something to me. This is what plants are capable. This is the experience that plants are capable of giving human beings. It's not just about eating cold, crunchy lettuce leaves from 2,000 miles away. Plants are so sophisticated in their tastes and their textures. Giving that to people has been very rewarding. And again, that's a combination of somehow these group of engineers and somehow this group of plant scientists have come together to make a machine produce ultra high quality plants. Um, so anyway, I have a tomato that tastes like a tomato, right? Not like some. Yeah, plant. exactly. It's, it's Many of these things taste like nothing, but we had the guy who built the organic brand for Whole Foods, he came to our office and sat down and we gave him some product to taste. And he said, I've been in the produce industry 40 years. I've been growing produce for 30 years. This is the best produce I've ever tasted. And oh, then yeah. our, our VP of plant science comes in and says, whoops, I gave you the, the wrong package. That stuff's two weeks old. So it's like that, that to me, and there are very few products I've noticed. There are very few products that provide such an experience, such an impact. It's funny when it comes to taste into food it's i don't know it's just so much more of an experience than many other products so all of that stuff just is super rewarding beautiful yeah and for me too plants are pleasure oh my yes. god plant foods are so delicious and yes such a beautiful sense sensory sensual experience as well yes. and it's prepared you just got fantastic produce i can't even begin to imagine how good your <laughs> stuff tastes so hopefully sometime soon we'll send you some we'll send oh. you some I will totally take you. Of course. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. That's most cool. kind of you. Cool. Uh, I want to, there's a gentleman I had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago via a dear mutual friend, Bassem Youssef, and he introduced my husband and I to one of your investors, Khalid bin Al-Walid. And uh-huh. that's also a human being with an amazing vision, plant-based, yeah. truly visionary himself. And yes. uh, for those in the audience who don't know who he is, uh, Khalid is a Saudi prince, an entrepreneur and an investor. He's the son of Al-Walid bin Talal, grandson yeah. of King Saud of Arabia, the great-grandson of King Abdulaziz, the founder of Saudi Arabia. And usually when we think about the Saudi prince, it's about a life of bling-bling, cars and palaces and jets and living at large and not really caring about yes. the rest of the world. But this gentleman is actually a polar opposite. He invests yeah. exclusively in sustainable ventures, believes in a yes. plant-based and sustainable future for humanity. Just another superhuman, just as you yourself are. Can you talk about the how the collaboration with him came to fruition? And also, I'm curious, like in your world, is have you felt a sense of a tribe building of just a lot of like-minded individuals coming together and building this better world? Yeah, it's a spectrum. What I've noticed is reality sits where it is, and then you have a spectrum of human interpretation. So there are people that are incredibly inspired by our story and invest tens of millions of dollars. And then there's a guy in a San Francisco tower that falls asleep in the middle of my presentation. So there's definitely a there's definitely a spectrum of reception for this. But specifically with Khaled, I uh, I went to this event that, you know, and this is a lesson to us all, it's a lesson to me. I went to this event that I thought was going to bear very little fruit but you go there in any way and you bring yourself to that event and you hold yourself in a specific way, it turns out that you meet the person who runs this fund and then you meet him and then he invests in the business and then he introduces you to the people, to people in the UAE. And eventually, I think we're going to start to do some business to Saudi, particularly with a project they're doing up there in the Northwest. So wonderful. just exactly as you described, a person with endless means who wears jeans and a t-shirt and sports shoes and spreads his money quietly throughout businesses that are going to make a positive impact on the world. Just the utmost respect to the man. Absolutely. 100%. And I'm so glad good people like you and him are finding together and moving the needle towards a better future for us all. Uh, Talking about really companies and endeavors that really have an impact or in this case may have a I foresee a huge impact in the future. You also launched Willow, which you call the future of personalized nutrition. Please tell us more about this. Sure. So years and years ago, just for a couple of weeks, I played this game called Farmville, which is, uh, it was on Facebook. There were 60 million people who were playing it at the time, which is essentially where you just create a farm and expand your farm and sell uh, sell the produce and plant more and all this kind of stuff. And it was just a fascinatingly addictive experience. And then when you start to match that with the massive deficit, nutritional deficit that even the United States experiences, I started to think, how can we, first of all, connect consumers directly to the farm, but also fight and make it interesting and make it dynamic? And so that's where the, that's where the idea of Willow came about. By the way, the name Willow comes from Hippocrates. The first ever scientific use of plant-based medicine was the use of willow bark for laboring women. We named the company Willow because we want to re-instantiate this concept that plants are medicine. Amazing. So what we want to achieve with Willow is each individual, over time, of course, but each individual can optimize what their farm is growing 
specifically so that person can operate at biological optimum. So let's take broccoli, for example. 10% of people do not have the capability to absorb the anti-cancerous properties of broccoli. Mm -hmm. This is just one example of the many ways that we differ in our absorption of these nutrients. So once we start to get Apple Watches and 23andMe and all of these things integrated together, we can build a plan for every single person on what they should eat and when if they want to operate at biological maximum or biological optimum. You mentioned it in your intro, what Superhumanize is about. We're always very close to that. We're endeavoring to find a way to nourish each individual optimally. So basically, you would choose what to grow on your vertical farm, and you could also grow plant medicines, or you could grow very specific types of, let's say, kale that are very specific nutrients yes. profile, right? Yes, yes. So this, what I'm talking about here is not current state. I'm talking about future state. But to indulge myself for a minute, plants are not only good at producing the molecules they do endogenously or naturally, you can also work with plants to produce molecules that they don't typically produce. And so that's in category one, food, and in category two, medicine and vaccine. What if there was a way to have a vertical farm that was growing your root vegetables, your leafy vegetables, your fruiting vegetables, your fruits, but also your medicines and vaccines? Mm -hmm. This is eventually where we want to get to is your vertical farm will provide you with essentially a molecular printer. What molecules do you need to operate at biological maximum and your vertical farm will produce those molecules for you. This is an absolutely stunning and super vision for the future. <laughs> if everything goes the way, let's say you would like for it to go, yeah. uh, how many years from a vision like that turning into reality? Large spectrum, but I think our goal by 2030 is to have touched 10 million lives. 2040, 100 million, and then 2050, a billion. I think that's possible. And all throughout the time, we're building sophistication into the system. So today, you can choose what you grow from a set of crops we have on a menu, and then we send that to your door. Then we start expanding that menu into edible flowers, root crops, berries, cannabis, these kinds of things. Then we integrate with 23andMe or Apple to start to get some biometric data so that we can optimize what you're growing. So The final state that I can currently foresee of us integrating with all of those businesses, meaningfully optimizing what your farm is growing for you, I would say that's probably about 2030. It's not far away. That's not far away at all. And as we've all realized, especially in the last few years, time literally passed the blink of an eye <laughs> that you've mentioned cannabis. So all yes. from probably from hemp to marijuana, depending on the legal state wherever you would grow it right yes, yes. Uh, how is it for growing fungi and i'm not talking magic mushrooms here i'm talking medicinal mushrooms reishi astragalus lion's mane and so forth yeah so the fungi are a slightly different product because those typically they require a different growth medium they require much higher humidity and they don't require light so in a way they're an easier plant or not plant they're an easier organism to grow than plants Currently, we're not focused on that, but that's within that sort of all-encompassing vision we were talking about a second ago. I think fungi are a massive part of that. And I wouldn't, if I, I know you're doing it for a variety of reasons, but the psilocybin mushrooms, the utility, this is the part where I'm probably slightly idealistic. 
the ability to utilize plant-based molecules for the betterment of your psyche, your mental and physical health, it's just clear. So we have to figure out as a humanity how we do that in a safe way. Absolutely. And I'm actually very, just on a tangent here, I'm very excited about the developments with regards to legalization and all. For example, we're going to have, I think, psilocybin and uh, this is not planned, of course, MDMA on the ballot, I believe, end of this year, 2023 in California, also a lot of other states. So many studies have been done with regards to plant medicines and molecules specifically and how they can alleviate a lot of suffering, from mental suffering to physical suffering. We're really living in exciting times. Yeah. I really fervently believe that it's also not the government's role to tell you what you do with your body. Yes. Your body. As long as you are not harming anyone else, you can put whatever you want into your body. I agree with you. Make mistakes. You can have bad trips. But you know what? It's going to help a lot more people than it harms. Yes. Biological freedom is a a big topic for me. And on all kinds, there's all kinds of different touch points. For example, when you talk to the types of uh, biohackers who are really modifying physically their own bodies with implants and doing all kinds of stuff, that for me, I consider myself a biohacker. That for me is myself, for my life, a little too much. However, I think, hey, you want to go for that, you do it. That is biological freedom. Exactly. So I think a few years or hopefully years and not decades down the road, we will also look back at this time and where basically governments told you whether or not you have a right to explore your own psyche and look at it as something that's completely not understandable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have, I've shared that, I share that view with you and I've held it for quite some time because I think what has brought humanity the most success is just freedom. Let me do what I want to do so long as I am not harming anyone else. And what it turns out to be is that when human beings have freedom, typically they do the right thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm totally with you on that. Absolutely. And nothing has brought more horrors on humanity than trying to impose one's own idea of happiness yes. on others, whether it's religious, <laughs> political, yes. uh, or whatnot. I believe, yeah, I'm with you there. Talking about plants and there's and also freedom. So you and I, out of our own freedom and sense of what we want to do with our bodies, our impact on the world, we chose going plant-based. Can you talk a little bit about your nutrition? I think you also practice intermittent fasting. And can you talk about, yeah, your nutrition? Sure, sure. I'm doing something nuts right now, which I probably won't be able to hold on for too long, but I'm trying to have one meal a day at the end of the day. Uh, I'm gluten-free and vegan. Yep. So essentially I can eat grass at 6 p.m. That's about it. That's about all I can eat at this point. No. So you're doing like what David, Dr. David Sinclair is doing. He has one meal at the end of the day. And I believe he also recently switched from mainly vegetarian with exceptions of fish. I think he recently switched to veganism. Did he really? Bloody hell. Well, there's two of us nuts people on planet Earth then. But <laughs> no, I, I like to mess with my body a little bit, find out what biological optimum looks like. But on, on the... On the vegan side of things, typically it's not something I talk about too much, but back in 2015, my brother and I, we're back in, what was this, 2015, I was 22, all my life had been eating meat, at least two meals a day. And I wasn't considering changing at all, but then I watched the documentary and 45 minutes in, I'm thinking, I cannot, the documentary was Earthlings, by the way, horrendous, it was just a horrific documentary to watch. 
I, I haven't watched it since, by the way. It's not, I took absolutely no joy in watching that film whatsoever. But if I can't watch it, I can't eat it. Yes. And so that was pretty clear. And so it really was from that moment on, I, I haven't had meat since. I haven't intentionally had any milk and eggs or dairy or anything like that, even though it's probably been in there somewhere. I don't know. But I've been mindful about that. But yeah, it was a, I see. I see humans as an animal, which we most obviously are. We just happen to have a fantastic intellect. And if I had no food and I was in the middle of nowhere, yes, I would eat meat. I would do what I would have to do in order to survive and to feed my children and these kinds of things. There's no question. But do I need to be consuming those products in order to be able to live a fulfilled life? No, I don't. And so I would prefer, once again, like you said before, I would prefer for my views or my desires not to impact the will or the lives of other animals of which we are one. That's 100%. It. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, Sam. We actually had a pretty similar journey. Earthlings, that documentary also was so impactful for me. And I highly recommend to anyone out there who is interested in looking into a more plant-based life, whether you go fully vegan or whether you go ab, which is yeah. you know, my personal philosophy, yeah. as vegan as possible, I'll still have honey or make an exception, let's say for dairy or such, maybe once a year, once every two years, but yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. whatever, if you want to continue eating meat on the weekends, you, you eat plants during the week, that's fantastic. That yeah. Yeah. And if you want some, of course, of course, there's a lot of different reasons to choose to go plant-based. There's animal welfare, there's the environmental impact, there's health, personal and also societal health. There's yeah. social justice. What we put on our plates has a direct impact on what's happening in the other end of the world by these huge monocultures producing soy and wheat to get fed to animals, destroying natural habitats. Yeah. So on and on. However, for the animal welfare, for the compassionate part inside of us, Earthlings is amazing to give mm. you a little bit more of the inspiration and tools to go a little bit further down that journey. You can watch it for free online. I really highly yeah. recommend it. Yeah, it's even if it doesn't change your dietary habits, at the very least, you'll see. And even if you do continue to eat meat, you think, bloody hell, I'd, I'd prefer not to get it from one of these sort of cow mills. I'd prefer to get it from my local butcher where I know that cow has lived a decent life. So I, regardless, I, th I think it's important to understand how these things occur. And even if it doesn't change your eating habits, it's just being informed, I think is important, especially when it comes to the life and death of a living thing so that you can eat something tasty. It just doesn't quite add up a lot of the time for me. Same for me. Absolutely. And every little thing matters. Every, every one person who is more informed and bases their decisions on that has an impact on the whole macrocosm. Great. And with regards to your nutrition, and you're just sharing that you have one meal at the end of the day, are there any biohacks you can share with our audience that have optimized your own health and wellness? I'm not currently in the business of optimizing my health and wellness. I'm in the business of trying to run a company and grow that company. So those two things are in direct conflict. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, exercise, good diet, sleep, you're 80% of the way there. And I think not all of us have the capability or not all of us have the desire to be at the edge, at the 95, at the 98%, like you are the Ben Greenfields of the world, Dave Asprey's of the world. But I think if you are, and I've always said this, becoming healthy is extremely simple, but not easy. I can explain to you in 30 seconds precisely what you need to do, probably with 99% surety for you to be healthy, but it ain't going to be easy. 
Mm-hmm. So that's what I've always said is that sleep, exercise for 30 minutes a day, even if it's a walk and eat predominantly plant-based, those three things, there you go. You're probably 80% of the way to good health and living an optimal biological life. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Sam, what's next for you and your brother and where do you see your business in 10 years? Having affected or touched 10 million lives, uh, demonstrating the ability for these systems to produce vaccines and medicines on a global scale and continuing to satisfy the palate of all of our consumers and members indirectly or directly. I, something I've learned is you during this business process is you can't be perfect. Not everyone is going to like you. Not everyone is going to like your decisions. Like I said before, there's reality and then there's a spectrum of human interpretation and you're going to get everything from as far left and as far right as you can imagine and then some. But it's about making sure that the actions that you take are actions that the vast majority of people would respect and align with and then keeping those blinders on and moving forward because there's constantly noise, do this, don't do that, go this way, don't go that way. You've really got to have this permeable layer of blinders around you and where you want to go and know that you're going to succeed. So John and I, right now, it's about nourishing human beings. I think the next one for us is going to be on energy, most likely nuclear energy. That's probably still 10 years away, five, 10 years away. So focus on this this business and this technology, get this well-oiled machine, deploying farm systems around the world, and then develop a solution to power them. Outstanding, Sam. And people who'd like to learn more about you and your brother, reach out, get in contact. How can they do that? Sure. Go to www.1.1.com. 1.1 spelled out, O-N-E-P-O-I-N-T-O-N-E. And if you're interested in the direct-to-consumer business, getting your getting access to your own slice of a vertical farm, just go to www.willow.farm, which is W-I-L-L-O.farm. And in both of those locations, you can get access to the produce, the technology, or access to John, myself, and the rest of the incredible team. Excellent. Sam, truly a superhuman, you and your brother. I love what you're doing, your mission. I can't wait to see Thank what you. Follow you guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much you for making time today to come on the Superhumanized podcast. What a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.